welcome this morning uh, to Woodmont. Uh, this is, uh, I love this time of year. It's, it's a great time to, to see the leaves changing. My wife uh, drove the kids to East Tennessee this weekend to see their cousins, and she said the scenery was just unbelievable, uh, driving through uh, the mountains uh, around Crossville and, and Cookville in that area. I love the, the reminder that we have uh, as the, the temperatures drop and the, the trees look like they're going to die that we have the promise of spring that awaits as well. So it's a good reminder for us. And along with this season, we, we also celebrate Thanksgiving. And so for the next two weeks, we're going to be talking about what it means to, to give thanks. And Thanksgiving has been an, a national holiday here in the United States ever since President George Washington declared it a national holiday on November 26th, 1789. He said that it would be a day set aside as a day of public thanksgiving and prayer to be observed by acknowledging with grateful hearts and the many and signal favors of Almighty God. The reality is that God has blessed us richly, and he is due our thanks so we trace our national Thanksgiving back to the, the first Thanksgiving at Plymouth Plantation, right, in 1620, where the pilgrims celebrated the bountiful harvest. It was actually it was 1621. They landed in 1620. 1621, they celebrated the, the bountiful harvest that the Lord had provided, that they had gone through so many hardships, and now the Lord had obviously taken care of them and, and blessed them richly. So they set aside a feast to give thanks to the Lord. You know, it's fascinating to me to read on several news and education sites recently how they divorce Thanksgiving from God. That they, they say Thanksgiving has become a popular, secular holiday. And it's, it's fascinating to me. I just don't, I don't get it. I don't understand. I saw on Wikipedia that it says, although Thanksgiving has historical roots in religious and cultural traditions, it has long been celebrated in a secular manner as well. I find this troubling. How is it possible to divorce giving thanks from some kind of deity? I mean, this is the question that I have here is how is it possible to give thanks to nothing, right? I, I asked this honest question on social media last year at this time of year, and one of my atheist friends from high school gave me an honest answer. It was really, you know, kind and I'm not trying to sound smarter than her or, or holier than her or anything, but she said, um, well, my family, we don't believe in a God at all, so we celebrate Thanksgiving, and we give thanks to the universe for its bountiful provision for taking care of us. Thanks to the universe. And I, I, the, the thought that I had immediately was, well, if the universe provides for you, if the universe takes care of you and is therefore worthy to receive your gratitude, then by definition, the universe is your God. You, you are not an atheist. In fact, you worship the universe because it takes care of you and is due your gratitude. Therefore, you worship something else. I believe the biblical term for that is idolatry. Whenever we ascribe our gratitude and our praise and our worship to something else besides the high and holy God, then that is idolatry. For us as Christians, we know that at Thanksgiving, we give our thanks to the one who truly provides for us, to the one who truly cares for us, to the one who sustains us by his grace and provision forever, the triune God who made heaven and earth and the entire universe 
And before we dive into our text this morning, I just want to explore this idea of gratitude a little bit further before we jump into Psalm 46. You know, as parents of young children, Morgan and I work very hard to ensure that we raise three grateful children. We want our kids to say please and to say thank you, right? And it's not just because we live in the South and we want them to be polite, right? The reason we want them to say thank you is because deep down we know that when our kids are grateful, that they're happy. Because we know that gratitude is tied to contentment, don't we? We want our kids to be happy and content. Therefore, we want them to be grateful for all that they have. It's not just a matter of politeness. You know, the brilliant 19th century writer, I love to read G.K. Chesterton. He was a a theologian and an armchair theologian. He said, I would maintain that thanks are the highest form of thought and that gratitude is happiness doubled by wonder. Isn't that great? Gratitude is happiness doubled by wonder. Thank you. Oh, it's amazing how happy I am. Thank you. You know, several secular scientists have shown research lately that shows how gratitude is tied to pleasure centers in the brain. They, they say that being thankful is good for you, physically, emotionally, all those ways. Last year, the actress Susan Sarandon hosted a one-hour radio special called The Science of Gratitude. It's won a lot of awards now, and in the official promotional material for The Science of Gratitude, it says this, the past 10 years have seen an explosion in the scientific study of happiness. The findings so far are complex and incomplete, but if they could be distilled into one simple prescription for happiness, it would probably be this, say thank you. Gratitude, it seems, is a key, perhaps the key, this is according to the promotional material, to feeling more satisfied with your life. It improves your relationships with loved ones. It's even good for your heart. If this is true, what science has discovered, and I believe it is true, then it must mean that for us as Christians, that God has hardwired us for gratitude. If God designed us to be content and happy in him, then surely he has put it into our design that we would be grateful people, that we would ascribe thanks to things. And so the the thing about thanks, though, is it's an expression of worship. Thanksgiving is merely one aspect of the act of worship. When my atheist friend said she gave thanks to the universe, she was clearly worshiping it. So we're not only hardwired to give thanks, but I would argue we're hardwired to worship. We were created to worship. We were made and designed to give worship, and thanksgiving is a part of that worship. And the truth is we will worship something each and every day because we were created to do that. You know, we give thanks, we ascribe glory and honor and praise to all kinds of things throughout our day. If, if you're obsessed with a certain sports team, let's say, and you've invested a lot of your time, your energy, your thoughts, your words, your money into that team, and it doesn't have to be a team, it, it could be a, a job, a girlfriend, could be a house, could be even your own children. It could be one particular political party or candidate. 
whatever it is that your hopes and dreams rise and fall with, that inevitably is your God. It provides for you what you need, and therefore you give it thanks, and you give it praise. Therefore, it is your God. Tim Keller, in his his book, Counterfeit Gods, he, he says that often what happens is it's a slow process where we let good things, family, job, these are not bad things, right? But we let good things become ultimate things. We start to find our identity, our security, our well-being, and our happiness in other things besides God. And usually, whatever that thing is, is what we give thanks to. And that is what the definition of idolatry is. I'm convinced that many supporters of both candidates in last week's election put their hope in government. They truly believe that government would provide a, a, the kind of life that they were looking for or something. I think that's part of why the despondent feeling on Wednesday among both political parties was so prevalent because they realized that government is not going to bring about the kind of life that they desire. Only Jesus Christ will do that. I think that government has proven itself this last week to be a counterfeit God. In 1972, a little-known pastor named Gordon Dahl wrote a little book. I have it in my office. It's a little red book. It's called Worship, Work, and Play in a Culture of Leisure. And in this book, he says this, it it haunts me. I, I think about this little phrase all the time. He says, many Americans have confused their values and their priorities. They worship their work, they work at their play, and they play at their worship. They worship their work because it provides for them. They work at their play. How many golfers do you know who have spent so much money on lessons and equipment and and they work at it? It's supposed to be recreation, right? And then play at their worship. I think we've all been guilty of saying, I didn't like that song. It didn't entertain me. It didn't move me the way I want to be moved. We come to worship to be entertained. This becomes our recreation. It's supposed to be a service not for us, but to God. I think this is pretty prophetic to have been written 44 years ago. 1972, he wrote this. For these two Sundays, this this Sunday and the next, I want us to make sure that we get our meanings and our values back in order. I want us to focus on the high and holy Yahweh triune God who loves us so much that he sent his only son to die for us and to give him all of our thanks and all of our praise. He's the only one that we should ascribe glory and praise and honor and dominion and thanks to. All right, so let's take a look at Psalm 46 now and see where we should be directing our hope and our gratitude. This is a very famous psalm. President Obama has referred to this psalm several times in his speech on the 10th anniversary of 9-11. He referenced this psalm. You heard the choir sing an anthem. Morgan and I sang that same anthem at Brookwood Baptist Church in Birmingham where we used to go. And I sang it as a youth at First Baptist with Mark Edwards when I was a teenager. And then we we closed last week's message on All Saints Day by looking at Martin Luther's hymn, Eine feste Borg ist unser Gott, that a mighty fortress is our God, right? And that psalm, that hymn was based on this psalm. This psalm is known as Luther's psalm. And it just so happened to be the lectionary text today. Churches all over the world 
are reading Psalm 46 today. I think that's providence. It's amazing how God works sometimes, isn't it? So this is also, this is fascinating. This is free, okay? Uh, some people think that Shakespeare left his mark on the King James Bible. He was in the court of King James in 1611 when the Bible was published, the King James Version. And if you count 46 words in the King James Version, including the, the intro part, the, the 46th word is shake. And if you count 46 word after that, it is spear. Pretty neat. It's very unsubstantiated. Probably not true, but... Uh, I always think about that whenever I read Psalm 46. It's pretty neat. Pretty neat coincidence in the King James Version there. Now you're going to be counting instead of uh, listening to my sermon. <laughs> All right. God is our refuge and strength. Let's just dwell in that for a minute, okay? God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in time of trouble. I would say that it's true that our nation is in a time of trouble. I don't want to be an alarmist, but divisions and hatred are, are very apparent this week. It's, it's obvious that they've been exposed and deepened on a lot of levels. How do we find refuge in the midst of this kind of turmoil that we're experiencing in this nation? Well, we remember where we are as the church, where we stand in the fortress of God. Here we are not vulnerable. We are not susceptible to the evil that our current political climate puts on us. It cannot harm us. We read last week in Ephesians 1 how for God's people, he puts his seal on us, the Holy Spirit who indwells us as a promise that it's a down payment for eternity, that nothing now can separate us from the love of God that we are his forever and he holds us securely in his hands. Nothing can remove us because God is our refuge and strength. And God is very present, it says here, right now, just as present to us today as he was to David when he wrote this psalm a long time ago in the midst of whatever crisis it was that God's people found themselves in back then. In God alone, we find our true security, all other refuges, are lies, things that promise to offer us peace and safety and comfort and security will not do it. They will let us down. It's, it's not God plus a good job. I think for most of us, we try to add things to God. We try to add things to our faith, right? Our refuge is not God plus a, a good paying job. Our refuge is not God plus the political candidate that we wanted to win, our refuge is not God plus a healthy, wonderful family. No, God alone is our refuge and strength. And the fact that he is very present means that he is merely waiting for us to discover him. Jeremiah 29, 13 reminds us that when you seek me, you will find me. He's very present. You may say, where is God now? If we're going to get to verse 10 in a minute that says, be still and know that he is a very present help right now. He's just waiting to be found by you. And therefore, we will not fear. One of my absolute pet peeves is how many people have used that word, godly Christian people who I respect, who said, well, if so-and-so wins, I'm terrified. I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely fearful what will happen to this country if so-and-so wins. I've heard it on both sides. You have too. For Christians, fear is not a valid option. 
Even though the earth gives way and the mountains fall into the sea, we will not fear. Why? Because 2 Timothy 1.7 tells us that for Christians, we've been given a spirit not of fear or timidity, but of gospel power and of love and of self-control. And 1 John 4.18 says there is no fear in love because perfect love casts out fear. See, the opposite of love isn't hate. It's fear. If you are terrified, you are not loving, according to Scripture. You cannot love and be fearful at the same time. Perfect love casts out fear, and perfect love is found in the one who is love, God himself, who is agape love. And look, I know change is hard. My wife hates change. It always freaks her out when anything changes. Our country is going through a historic, radical change. There is much uncertainty for us, but there is not fear. Because God is our refuge and strength. Through the change, he will not change because he is the same yesterday and today and forever. And we can rest secure in that, no matter what changes in this nation. Why? Because verses 4 through 7 in Psalm 46 tell us that God is at home on his throne, in the middle of his city. You know, when I was a kid, I slept secure knowing that my parents were at home, that they would take care of us no matter what happened. That's how it is now. God is at home. He's on his throne. We're going to be okay. He will take care of us should anything befall us. And the city here that Psalm 46 refers to is the people of God. It's Zion. We know from our series in October that we did, Be the Church, that Zion refers to us now. The church is the city of God. The church is where God dwells. The church is where the throne of God exists, and he is in our midst, according to this psalm. And there's a river of grace and goodness and provision that flows into the city of God, into the church that provides for us. You know, Nashville, like many great cities, was built on the banks of a river. Rivers sustain cities through transit and through bringing in produce and all kinds of of goods and services. In the ancient Near East, when an attacking army wanted to besiege a city, the first thing they would do is cut off their water source, cut off the river of supply to that city. Our city has a supply from God himself, the river that makes glad the people of God and can never be shut off or stopped. That river continues to flow. Let's don't forget that. And he is in our midst. Spurgeon, I love his commentary on Psalms. He says, if the city is besieged, well, he is besieged with her. He is in the city. He is with the church when we are struggling. He is right in the midst of us. He hasn't abandoned us in this time. I I love the Lord of the Rings books, J.R.R. Tolkien's books. In the final book, the final battle of the final book, the armies of Mordor have been assembled and have been sent out by the evil Lord Sauron to march on the last hope of men, the city of Minas Tirith. And before its gates, before the city gates, thousands and thousands of evil armies have assembled around, and it doesn't look good for for the the kingdom of men and the kingdom of all that's good in Middle Earth. 
And the little hobbit, Pippin, is on the balcony, on the rampart, overlooking these armies with the, the white wizard, Gandalf, the most powerful wizard on Middle-earth. And Pippin says, it's so quiet. And Gandalf says, it's the deep breath before the plunge. And Pippin says, I don't want to be in a battle, but waiting on the edge of one is, I can't escape, is even worse. Is there any hope, Gandalf? And Gandalf says, well, there never was much hope, just a fool's hope. Our enemy is ready, his full strength is gathered. And then Pippin says, but we have the white wizard. We have the white wizard. No matter what comes against us, we have the white wizard. For the church, we have something much better than the white wizard in our city. We have the king of kings and the lord of lords in our midst. Therefore, we are immovable. We are unshakable because our enemies would have to move our king first, and that's not going to happen. The Lord of hosts, the, the one who commands the angel armies of heaven, Yahweh, Sabaoth, that's what it is in Hebrew, is with us. Luther says in A Mighty Fortress is Our God that this is King Jesus, Lord Sabaoth, his name from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. Let's finish this psalm by looking at the last section, verses 8 through 11. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he's brought desolations on the earth. Here we are invited to come out and, and see our enemies laid waste before us and receive the spoils of war that God has delivered for us and secured for us. He makes wars cease, verse 9, to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. The Lord in his sovereign power and his might by his word says, enough, stop. No more violence, no more war. He says enough to the powers of earth that are stirring up trouble. I love the way Spurgeon handles this. He says, oh, blessed deed of the Prince of Peace, when shall it literally be performed? Already the spiritual foes of his people are despoiled of their power to destroy. But when shall the universal victory of peace be celebrated for real and the instruments of wholesale murder be consigned to ignominious destruction? How glorious, Spurgeon says, will the ultimate victory of Jesus be in the day of his appearing when every enemy shall lick the dust? That's next week's sermon, by the way. I can't wait. Isaiah 65. We'll talk about that next week when we thank God for our future hope. But this week we focus on the present way that Christ has defeated death and the power of evil. And so therefore we have nothing to fear from our spiritual enemies or anyone else. No fear. And then I love the way the psalmist closes this hymn of thanksgiving. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. If your life is anything like mine, and I suspect it is, it's pretty busy. You've got a lot going on. Our, I went on a retreat with some teenagers from First Baptist Church this weekend, and the youth minister said, it used to be that we try to program everything so that we, we kept them busy, but now we try to unplug them because they're so busy as it is, we just let them hang out and dwell as some Sabbath on a retreat. Makes a lot of sense to me. This verse is a call to relax, to take a deep breath, to sit down, put your feet up, 
Take a load off. Step away from the strife of daily living and know that God is God and we don't have to be. We can't be. That he will accomplish all that he has set out to do. That he will indeed win the battle. He will be exalted, it says, so that everyone will know that he is God. Just sit back, be patient, and watch him do it. Then finally, verse 11, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Again, Yahweh Sabaoth, the God who commands the host of heavens, the angel armies, is in our midst. He's with us. He fights for us. The God who turned Jacob, a mama's boy who stole his, mother's, his brother's birthright, he turned him into the mighty nation of Israel. That same God can do the same for you and for me today. He is still our mighty fortress. I hope this morning we remember that. I hope that this has served as a bit of a reality check in the midst of strange and hard times for our country and for the church. Jesus Christ, who came to earth as God incarnate, who lived a perfect life among us and gave us words of life and then died a perfect atoning death in our place, paying the debt that we could not pay, and then rose again to life by the power of God, is in the midst of his people. So let's recheck where we place our gratitude and our thanks today. Who is it that you give thanks to on a daily basis? Who is it that you look to to provide you with what you need to sustain you, to give you your identity for who you are, to provide for your well-being and your contentment, your happiness in your life? Is it your job? Is it your spouse? Is it your children, maybe? Let us give all of our thanks and worship to the only high and holy God who is our mighty fortress and our refuge and present help. The reality is is that our true security is in God alone who commands the host of heaven in our defense and fights our battles for us. If only we'll be still and know it. All the other refuges are lies. Politics can never provide for us what God can. We closed last week hearing the the words of Luther's hymn from 1521. I want to close this week with the words of a song that was written 492 years later in 2013 by Chris Tomlin. It's called, Whom Shall I Fear? You hear me when I call. You are my morning song. Though darkness fills the night, it cannot hide the light. Whom shall I fear? You crush the enemy underneath my feet. You are my sword and my shield. Though troubles linger still, whom shall I fear? I know who goes before me. I know who stands behind. The God of angel armies is always by my side. The one who reigns forever, he is a friend of mine. The God of angel armies is always by my side. And nothing formed against me will stand. You hold the whole world in your hands. I'm holding on to your promises. You are faithful. I know who goes before me. I know who stands behind. The God of angel armies is always by my side. Let's pray. Lord God, this morning, we give you thanks 
because you are worthy to receive it. We give you thanks because we were created to do so. We give you thanks because you alone have provided for us throughout our lives and sustained us by your grace. Lord, nothing we've done could deserve all that you've given us. So I pray that you would help us to surrender our lives as a sacrifice of thanksgiving to you. God, as we approach this sacred season of thanksgiving, may we refocus our hearts, affections, and our minds' attentions on you, the one who provides for us as a constant refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. We love you. We pray this in your high and holy name. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.